Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. How is postmodernism affecting our world today? Pastor Jacob Ballard explains how narrative, experience, community, and subjective truth are key ways that postmodern-minded people go about making sense of reality. Then he shows how movements like Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ plus rights draw strength from these postmodern ways of thinking. Here now is episode 372, part three of our series on postmodernism, Postmodernism's Effect Today. Welcome back, Jake Ballard. So glad to have you for another discussion about our culture, about worldview, and postmodernism and how it affects our world today. I'm very glad to be here. All right, so where would you like to get started for our topic today? So like you said, we're talking about how it affects our world today, and uh, it's good to kind of just go over, uh, I think, three elements before we go into some of these how we see it play out and three elements that are going to be really important and they're going to sort of drive uh, a lot of these different topics and how postmodernism affects our world. So the first element is narrative. So remember in our earlier conversations, we talked about meta narratives. Meta narratives are these grand stories and ideas where one story, whether that's science or Christianity or Islam, any major story tells us everything that we can know about the world. And according to some authors about postmodernism, it's really just incredulity, disbelief in those meta-narratives. And what has happened is that meta-narratives are out, but what has come in their place are communal and personal narratives. So the stories that we tell ourselves shape the world around us. Other authors have said that we live in a world that is open and ripe for deconstruction, where we pull apart the different pieces of our world in order to examine them, and then we reconstruct after that, and we interpret the world. The entire world is open for interpretation, and our communities that we are part of and our personal narratives that we have and our communal narratives that we have all help us with that interpretation of the world. So that's a big element, and that will come up a number of times we'll be seeing that as we go forward. As you're mentioning that, you remind me of the, the tendency in some like older Christian resources to talk about man. And that was sort of like a, a real way of describing things. You have God and you have man. And this is the inclusive singular that refers to humanity, but it was a way of talking about humanity as if you weren't one. And it was, I I would say, a distinctly modernist style of sort of expressing the wide sweeping narrative or the meta narrative of you have God and you have man and man sins. And then you have uh, Jesus who dies for our sin. And, you know, all of this is still obviously true because it's, it's in the Bible, but how we say it and how we can say it in such a way that it connects with people today if we start out with uh, a term that many would consider today to be sexist and then impose upon them an overarching way of looking at all of history in our first few sentences, we might just short-circuit their way of thinking, and they might start accusing us of 
colonializing them or in, in some way infringing on their own personal liberty just because of our approach. Is that what you're saying here? Sean, that's absolutely right. You're absolutely on point there. How we use language is very important. So when I say narrative, it does mean our stories and where we come from, but even how we tell the story, how we tell our story is important. If we say that this happened to us, whatever happened to us, and I was carried along, or I say, I chose to follow, those are going to make big, mean very different things because how we tell our story is important. And so to say, man, when we mean humankind or we mean humanity and we say just man or man, even mankind, right? All of those things get wrapped up into people saying, well, that disenfranchises me from hearing your story. I can't relate. I can't interpret. All those kinds of things will have to be talked about. You're right about saying we got to start on a place where they can hear us, where where people who don't have all of our language and our Christianese, you know, the terms that we use that we think make sense in the side of our Christian context, they don't make sense in a wider world. And people aren't coming with a background of understanding Christianity, and we just got to renew them to faith. We've got to start speaking their language. So absolutely, you're, you're right on point. Yeah, I totally agree. And this narrative aspect of the culture today is something that I think we can tie in later in this conversation as far as evangelism goes. How can we tailor our message in such a way that it taps into this cultural desire? Whereas the modernist was so passionate about evidence, and we had these huge Christian ministries focused on evidence for God and evidence for the Scripture's veracity and evidence for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. All, all of these resources and videos and articles and debates on these things, because Christianity, we just knew that if we presented cold, hard facts that we could win the day. If we continue on in that way, not only is it not going to be as effective, I mean, sure, it'll be effective with some, but not with people who have a postmodern mindset, but it actually can do the opposite of pulling them in. It can, it can actually push them away. So understanding these three elements you're working through here, narrative, experience, and community, this is not just like, oh, well, let's just these are curious things about our culture. No, this is this is the way that a lot of people think. And if you have a desire to reach them, we need to understand them. Just like a missionary who drops in from a parachute into the middle of the Amazon jungle needs to understand how the language works, how the culture works. What do they care about? What do they not care about? This is the same thing. Our culture has shifted and we're the missionaries. So Absolutely. what about what about these other elements here, experience and community? Tell, talk to us about that a little bit. So experience really is where this personal narrative we've been talking about comes in. What a person experiences, what they go through in life, what they've seen and heard and taste and touch and feel, that's really what takes precedence and how they view the world. It's not about what does science tell us? What does a faith tell us? Our experience plays into it, it. It really forms and shapes. We see the world through experience primarily when we're talking to people who are postmodern. They're seeing the world primarily through how they've experienced life rather than how they think about life, what, like with, like I said, with science. So when we say experience, we need to be saying more than saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about this? author or this book or the Bible, we start with, where are you from? 
And that sounds really cliche, but it's saying, who are you? What have you been through in life? Where has your story taken you? And I think that that's an important thing to start. If we're just talking, and that's just talking about evangelism, but if we expand it out, understanding where people are coming from and where their communities are speaking from will allow us to understand what they have experienced, what their story is, and how that connects to the narrative of the community of God. And that's so that's true with everyone. Experience is primary. And I think that's the important part of this. It's not experience is a part of what we learn and how people learn that are postmodern. It is experience is the primary way in which people learn and grow and communicate and go through life. It's all through what they've been through, where they've been, where they've walked, because that's the most sure thing in the world. You can deconstruct how you interpret that experience, but you can't deconstruct that the experience happened. And that's an important part of, of understanding how this culture works together. So you have narrative, you have experience. And the last thing we want to talk about is community. Community are the places that we put ourselves into, the people that we go along life with. So if we look back from a few weeks ago, we talked about the idea of the ancient world and the medieval world and the modern world and the postmodern world. And when we look at what was the primary way that people saw themselves, in the modern world, it was individualistic. And in the ancient world, it would have been tribal, that your tribe, your, your culture, the, the people that you are born and raised with in your ethnic group are your primary ways of understanding yourselves. Today, community has retaken the place of prominence and how we understand who we are, but it's understanding that I am an individual in a community. That both and is very important, that both and of I am an individual and I've had my own experiences, but I choose to be part of this community. I choose to identify with this community. That term identification is really important. So when people say I identify as a person in the LGBTQ plus spectrum or I identify as black or I identify as white, that's a a huge part because they're saying this is the community to which I belong. And that community helps us interpret the world. It shapes our experience. So they're all three, the narrative experience and community are wrapped up together. And it's hard to say, where does one end and the other begin? But they're all a huge part of what's going to shape the current expressions of postmodernism in our world. Okay, so let me ask you a little bit of clarification here on community. Now, humans have always had community to different degrees. How is postmodernist community thought of differently than modernist community? So in modernist, we are individuals that gather together. So think about how you view church. In a modernist setting, it would be, I come in, I sit in a pew, I watch the presenter and the band. It's sad that it is very consumeristic, but that's a product of modernism. I get fed, they speak to me about my personal needs, and then I go out. You could eat, you could have you could have time together, you could hang out. But in the end at the end of the day, the most important person in the way church is presented is not that there is a community of people and you happen to attach to it, but that you are individually have been saved. The language of if you were the only person to ever exist, Christ would have still died for you. It's maybe true, but it's also extremely modern. What is the primary focus? Is it primarily about an individual coming to God? Or is it primarily about, for, the, for a postmodern view of church, 
a community of people that we attach ourselves into or we don't, and they are the ones that God has called. And so in the larger world, we are not cogs in the machines anymore, where people don't view themselves as the center of their universe in the same way that they were in a modern world. The idea of a, of a nuclear family has been attacked recently, but a nuclear family in the way it's used in postmodern culture, is a mom and a dad and their kids without any support and relational networks. So they don't go see grandma who may live nearby. They move away from their from their hometowns and they're not near cousins or uncles or aunts or anybody else. Are you talking about postmodernism or modernism? That's actually right a now. modern idea. Okay. That's the when you, so when people say let me let me go back and make it allegiance more clear. to the corporation over your village or your family Absolutely. or your town Absolutely. You and it's because you are a sovereign individual. You control your fate. That's a modernist idea as well. The nuclear family is a modern invention in the sense that you are not tied to your larger extended family network. Now, a nuclear family is fine if you're saying, okay, mom and dad and kids are important, and we should try to keep mom and dad in the home. I, that's understood, and that should be the response. But what happens is that people hear nuclear families are out, are bad, and they think, I know what a nuclear family means, when in reality, a nuclear family is understood as a small family unit in isolation from the larger support structures. And, and that's the same thing that happens with individualism in modernity. An individual isolates themselves from larger support structures and goes through life atomistically. So that's the kind of difference. It's saying they striving for connectivity and community and saying, I submit my individuality to this community. Does that make sense? So it's there is community throughout all time, but in the worst expressions, community subsumes our identity. And this is where it becomes problematic when people say they don't have any thoughts other than what the community says one must think. Yeah, they call that groupthink. Yeah, exactly. And that is where it's bad. I'm trying to paint it in a more positive light because it can be positive, but it could also become very negative, right? So it's it's understanding both and. So the postmodern view of community is not that I participate in the community because of the benefits it offers me, but that I participate in the community for the benefits that I offer the community because the community's good, the community's story is really what's primary and I'm secondary. Would that be a fair way of saying it? That would be a fair way of condensing it down, yeah. Okay. So narrative, experience, community, these three pillars we might call of postmodernism. Uh, talk to us about how these different values really come to express themselves in our own culture today, in our own social issues today. Absolutely. So the first one that I want to talk about, because it's one that we hear a lot, and it's a one that may get your hackles up, because if you've heard it like I have, is annoying because you can't really respond to it. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll be honest with that, because it's the statements of, well, that is your truth but this is my truth, or my truth is that this is going on in the world, or you have your truth, I have my truth, all those different ways, really those two phrases. The idea that truth is relative is thrown around that idea of, oh yes, there's no such thing as absolute truth, 
but it's saying that the way that it gets expressed is I say something, I could say anything. And if I say it's my truth, then it is unquestionable because for me, it is true. For other people, it may not be true, but for me, it's true. So it's unquestionable. You can't tell me that it's, that it's wrong because it is my truth. That is a place where experience and your narrative really take center stage. Uh, we're talking about this idea of what we've been through, how we express ourselves and how we experience our life. That is where my truth comes out of. It's saying, I have seen this, that, and the other. So it's true for me that X is happening or that I am a way that may not be biologically the same as my, I may not be biologically this way, but I express myself as this way. I, if someone says it's my, I speak my truth that I am a woman, even though they're biologically male, that's a, that's a huge part of postmodernism coming out. And this is hard for Christians because we serve the one who says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And it's a big point that we talk about truth with a capital T, that there is some, there is one truth and everything else submits to that. And this is where we're going to have to start talking to people in ways that they can understand of saying, how do we connect their truth to the truth? But that's a, that's a huge part of understanding everything that comes later is understanding that people speak their own truths. And those are in some cases with some people impossible to question. Many of us, including myself, when we first started encountering this kind of language, this, this thoroughgoing relativism, oh, that's your truth, that's not my truth, and this sort of thing, we, we were so put off by it, uh, and we, we said, well, let's wage a epistemological war first and argue our opponents down into recognizing the factuality of objective truths. Although that strategy might be appealing and might be easily winnable, I fear that, that that strategy may not be effective because rather than trying to change somebody's worldview, which is something that most people are not going to give you access to or even really be self-aware of them, themselves, presenting the gospel in a way, or God in a way, that makes sense to their categories, not as a final ending point, but as a starting point, I th- that's where I'm really interested here, Jake, in this whole yeah. subject. I'm interested in how do I talk to people in a way that they can receive it and that makes sense to them and that, beyond both of those, is attractive to them. You know, in 2016, Oxford Dictionary declared the word post-truth the word of the year, Uh (laughs) defined as circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than emotional appeals. And, you know, that that was a fun little factoid to guffaw at in 2016 when that came out, and uh, I and many others made fun of it, and we just said, oh, you know, aren't, aren't the kids today just so dumb? But it's expressing, it, it, this, this word, post-truth, it expresses a reality, okay? It might not be a good way to lead your life, or maybe it's a better way to lead your life, whatever. That's not really the relevant point. The point is, emotional appeals are more influential than objective facts in the year 2020. Yeah, that's the fact. So like, you know, what am I going to change the entire culture? And then I'm going to start talking to people about my faith. Or can I find a way to talk about truth in such a way that, first of all, it doesn't 
anger other people. And second of all, is actually attractive. And I, I'm not sure exactly yeah. how to do that, Jake, but like, you know, maybe looking at God's truth as his truth and inviting them to make God's truth their truth as well. That's a great starting know. point. That's a great point. And that's actually a way, I, if you were going to talk about truth, that would be a way to, I'm not trying to tell you my truth. I want to hear your truth. I'm not trying to tell you mine. I believe that these people knew what God was saying about the world. And I try to align my truth with with him. That yeah. is a great way. If they're talking about truth and they're saying, you can't possibly know what's beyond this world. You can't know about anything that is supernatural, you know, other than what we can experience. That's fine. A great way to do it. In the case of truth, I would stay away. I would say, let's talk about truth down the line. Because I think it'd be better to start with, what is the reality about the world? The world is broken and things need to be set right. And I don't think many people would disagree with that. Gen Z culture is very much marked with a sort of hedonistic nihilism, if we want to. I know that seems very grandiose, but it's the nothing matters so party. And that's where right. meme culture comes from and where you'll see kids talk about things like making jokes about suicide and death it's a it's a way to deal with gen z reality of a super internet infused world and talking about love and meaning and purpose grounds people and gives people something to latch onto and to hope for that's much better than starting with let me fix your view of truth giving people purpose and meaning and allowing them to have something greater than just waking up tomorrow to party and look at memes, right? Right. That's kind of a hard thing to deal with. And it's it's really big. And it's it's that it's talking about a, a very postmodern group of people, but it's also their generational cohort. And they're also still developing and very young. So all that could change over time. And that's an important thing we'll get to later. But we need to understand that we're talking about postmodernism, but we also have to think about what are the generations that we're speaking to because a yeah. millennial and gen z are going to look pretty different even if they're both postmodern. yeah yeah I, I i agree with you there uh but at the same time i i see old people that are postmodernists as well and oh yeah absolutely uh, absolutely sometimes just a function of where they were raised uh, yeah who, who are their influences and so on i i think generally what you said is is unquestionable that among youth it's much more common Right. And when you have a movement starting in, in the 1940s and 50s in Europe and the 60s in America, you're going to have people who are older who, and it's now 2020, you're going to have a lot of people who, who are older who have this worldview as well. Yeah. Um, that's your truth and my truth. And I think that a way that we can see this played out is how this affects our discussion of, of race in America. And I don't want to wade into too politically heavy territory, but I just want to talk about some things that have been happening and how these things play out as we talk about race and racial ideas in America. One of the examples that I think of is Black Lives Matter. Now, as a person, as a Christian, and as a pastor, I think the phrase Black Lives Matter should be a non-negotiable. Black lives, of course they matter. And anyone who says otherwise is missing a huge part of what God has intended for us. We should love all people. God loves every person. So it's important to recognize that the phrase is something that we should unequivocally agree with. However, 
the movement that has associated with it, both Black Lives Matter, the movement and the hashtag has started to incorporate things that we could say are community narratives speaking out in ways that may not be factually correct with the details on the ground. An example of this would be how Black Lives Matter discusses shootings. There are some police shootings that and we can all agree, we can start off with police shootings. We wish they happened less. We wish that there was less violence on our streets. We wish that police didn't feel the need to defend themselves with violence, of course. But there are some cases where legally they are justifiable, and but they're spoken of as murders and as a genocide against Black people, modern day genocide. Those are very strong languages, but it's the community narrative that's been built up in Black Lives Matter that tells people how, if you're going to identify as either a Black person or an ally of Black people, the overarching belief is that you must agree with the narrative that Black Lives Matter or hashtag Black Lives Matter has been purporting. Now, again, we can say less violence would be great and police violence. There are some police shootings that are totally unjustifiable, but is every one of them an example of systemic racism in America? And that's where we may have a, may have a problem to, to say, is that what's factually happening on the ground? I'll let you respond to that because I know that's a, a big topic. Maybe we don't want to touch it anymore, but saying <laughs> what this is an example of a community narrative being purported as what must be true. That's a, a hard topic to open up because it feels like you're saying racism doesn't exist. Of course it exists and it's awful. And right. we should be fighting it every every chance we get as the church on the front lines fighting racism everywhere we see it. But that doesn't mean that every instance of police violence is racism. Of course not, yeah. Uh, I, I would say that if people want to know more about Black Lives Matter, as it relates to the shootings that have happened over the, the last uh, months, especially, uh, they should listen to episode 358, where I interviewed Russell Brown, uh, who is really in a unique cross-section of situations to see the, the multifaceted nature of the situation because he himself is black. Um, he's also white because he's half and half, and he's also a police officer. But as far as postmodernism is concerned, you're bringing this subject up as an example of narrative that if you want to be considered part of the BLM supporters, which in our, in our society today has a lot of social cachet uh, associated with it, if you want to be counted with this community, you have to buy into the community narrative, regardless of the nuances that you're saying this narrative totally runs roughshod over uh, in order to establish his point. Exactly. And that's a way of the community. We talked earlier about sometimes the community subsumes individuality. And if a person says, I am black, I identify as black, whether so your half white, half black friend who was on the podcast, which sounds like an awesome episode. I can't wait to go listen to it. <laughs> if they said, I identify as black, and then they said, but I, I have some problems with Black Lives Matter. Some people in the community would say, you 
aren't black. You don't know. You you may have the right skin tone, but you don't fit within our tr- within our community. Mm-hmm. So there are gatekeepers in communities, and that is not everyone. It's the worst kind of expression of this. So I want to be careful that that's not everyone, but it, it is a, a real problem. And it's saying the community is subsuming conversations, and and that happens as well in another the 1619 project. And if you haven't heard this, this is the New York Times saying that America did not begin in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence and the war for freedom, the rebellion against England, however you want to term that that war. They say it started with the first slave ship coming over in 1619, and the slavery is really the beginning of America. And while you can make the case that that is that's what's going on, it's a community narrative. It's what they're they're saying to truly understand America, to uh, to be able to deconstruct the white patriarchal system and to divest it of power and give power to the people. We have to understand where it begins. Again, I don't know if I agree with this. I think that it has a lot of problems historically. Things have been changing. the The original articles have been changed over time to reflect better and more current historical bits of information, and that actually takes away some of the power, but it was a really big talking point in 2019, this idea that we can just rewrite the beginning of the American nation as a the time with, for the beginning of slavery. Again, that's I think that is a postmodern move. It's a move to say we're interpreting America in light of this event, not this other event. And that has dangerous repercussions for how we view ourselves as a, as a country. And again, I grew up in the South and I saw racism and I saw Confederate flags. And I understand that racism is evil and slavery was one of the greatest sins that America has ever committed and that the world has ever committed. It is an atrocity and we should be repenting of it still today and fighting it wherever it is found. Uh, whether that's in a prison state or whether it's in slavery in other countries as well, legalized slavery. But that doesn't mean that America began at that. But but what you're saying is that because you don't buy the whole package, that gatekeepers of the movement would reject you. Even though you agree that racism is an atrocity, slavery is even worse, and that black lives do matter— they would reject you as a, a member of that community. Right. The The terms have gotten loaded and the community says you have to agree with all of the terms of 1619 Project and Black Lives Matter. Some people will say you can't be an ally when things were happening. And when I see actual cases of police brutality, especially against black people, I will stand up and decry them. You know, that's that's awful. Uh. We should we should be decrying them and, and standing up and speaking out. But if I say I don't agree with your perception of when America began, I just think that it's wrong because it doesn't fit with the records of history that, yes, I would be deemed someone who is racist, who is bigoted, because if you don't agree with their version of it, you are maligned and you are and not not only in this case, you can't be a ally and a member in the community. Mm -hmm. You are actually an enemy of the community. You're either woke or racist. Yes, exactly. And it's not good enough to just not be racist. In some people's minds, you have to be anti-racist. The question is, what does that even mean? 
it's questionable what that means. I'm not trying to instill too much of my own politics. I'm sure people can guess in some cases where I land, but I want to be careful that this isn't about politics. It's about those are expressions, I think, of a deeper postmodern culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me bring up another issue and we can talk about it a little bit. A friend of mine, uh, Beckett Cook, who uh, I've had on a couple times on the show, he wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition called uh, Why Hollywood Praises Elliot Page and Blacklists Me, in which he, he wrote, The world applauded the actress Ellen Page, uh, star of Netflix's Umbrella Academy in films like Juno and the X-Men series, when on December 1st, she announced her decision to become a man, changing her name to Elliot Page. Meanwhile, my decision to no longer identify as a gay man because I follow Christ is anathema in our culture. And uh, I wonder if we can shift gears a little bit here from race to sex, just a totally uncontroversial topic, and uh, get into how does postmodernism play into this? Because what Beckett Cook is saying here in this article is that, look, I transformed from one expression of sexual identity to another, and... I got cast out, and I am being authentic to my true self, and Ellen Page did a different kind of transformation, and everyone applauds her slash him for this transformation. This is a double standard. Right. It is a double standard. They don't want to talk about the fact that there are people who choose to identify in ways that don't fit the communal narrative. Again, we go back to the community, in this this case, the LGBTQ plus community says that to be a good person, to be a person that is acceptable in the world around us, one must be an ally of our community. And you have to agree with how we look at the world. And so this comes out in a couple different ways. And sometimes those ways are at odds with one another. First of all, one must be feminist. It's not enough to be egalitarian in our world to say that men and women are equal in their giftings and abilities. Even if we you know, say maybe in the church that, that, or in the home for Christians that takes a different stance. It's that one must be feminist, actively fighting a male patriarchal cis-normative culture. And to explain that it's to say you're, it's a patriarchal culture of men, that men, men rule everything, um, that the world is dominated and run by men and that women are always being victimized. And then the other side of that is a cis-normative, meaning that people who are born, the sex to which they identify, which would be, I was born male and I identify as male, that makes me cisgender. Uh, it's a way of talking about people who are not trans. This is, those, those, those <laughs> things are- It's even hard are, to talk about it, right? I mean, exactly. It's just, it's the language just seems so it, foreign. Well, and that's an important thing to see, though, that you're seeing the language is, is foreign because new language is being- created to explain these movements. It's a deconstruction of of language and of gender that says, do we need, and and in many cases, uh, this is an important point, deconstruction doesn't always lead to reconstruction. So when someone said that we we deconstruct the world we we take it apart piece by piece to see what is at the bottom of an under, of this understanding they're trying to deconstruct our understanding of of gender and of sex i i think that some activists of the lgbtq plus community don't intend to rebuild anything they want to leave our understanding of gender and sexuality in the pieces that are left after a deconstruction. That's not a thing of saying I, I agree with what they're doing or I disagree with what they're doing. I'm saying that may be the reality of what they're trying. They're trying to a- accomplish people not 
having a view of men and women as different, but as everybody's all the same. And if you want to transition and be transgender, or if you want to be queer, or if you want to be gender fluid, where you're one gender one day, one the next, or if you want to be non-binary, they're wanting to say all of that is acceptable. And that is a really hard thing to deal with as a person who looks at scripture. Let's talk about as, as Christians looking at this, and we see that men and women are given roles in the home, in the church, and what it means to be a man as a biological human is that there are differences than what it means to be a woman and differences in what the body produces, how the body functions, how sex works. And that's an important thing that we recognize as Christians. And it's something that is downplayed or completely avoided being discussed in Hollywood and culture. And so going back to your friend who identified out of the community, well, first of all, he says, I'm not going to identify as gay. That's a huge thing to say, I was a part of a community and I'm no, I am choosing to opt out of it. When that community is the community of the people who are on the quote, right side of history, to say, I'm not going to be a part of that, I can understand them blacklisting him. I mean, I don't agree with it, but I can see why they did it because they think he's saying being gay is wrong. He's saying, I I can't identify as that, and you shouldn't either. And that's questioning their truth. Even though he's speaking his truth, it seems hypocritical, and it is. But that's just the reality of how how these people are viewing the world. Ellen Page uh, is opting into the community. She, he, however you want to use those terminologies. Again, I don't want to step on toes as a lesbian, and then is now opting into as a uh, trans man. and. a a queer trans man, how the community holds us together, how we talk about the community and how they shape our narrative. It's deconstruction of what we think about the world. And then finally, it's that we can use our language, human language, to shape our reality. In the wider culture, if someone says, I identify as whatever the thing is, that person is then allowed to say their reality, their truth, is that they are what they claim allegiance to. And and this comes out in a number of different ways. Of course, we see Elliot and Ellen Page as male. The same thing happened with Caitlyn Jenner. And then there are some people who were claiming to be Black that were born into a white family. Uh, This doesn't get as much notice, but Rachel Dolezal was a person who said, I identify as Black. She worked for the NAACP. And it came out that she was born into a white family, and it it caused a lot of uproar. Just because people say, I identify with this community, I want to be a part of this community, and it's not our place with our truth to speak to how their truth should be expressed. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you could comment a little bit about the opposing force on these movements. We talked about race. We talked about uh, sexual identity. And these are both positions that we find more on the left than on the right politically. And I was thinking, well, there's a strong resistance to Black Lives Matter as it's defined in all its uh, trappings and so on, not just the statement. Obviously, everyone agrees that Black Lives Matter is a statement. Uh, And there's a strong reaction against the push, in, especially in Hollywood, is where you see it a lot. Netflix, uh, Amazon, and, and all, all these uh, networks on TV and, and movies and so on, where it's like every show is pushing 
to normalize lesbian and gay behavior. Well, I mean, that's that's old hat. I mean, that's that's from years ago. But now every show has got to have at least one trans person in it, it seems. And uh, everyone has to agree with that ideology. Right. So there's this push. And when there is a push in one area of the society, there is going to be a reaction against that push. And so that's what I was a little curious about whether it should be called the alt-right or just conservatives in general, because the word conservative means you're conserving what used to be the status quo in the culture. And uh, my point is not to argue for it or against it. My point is just to raise it up. It's like, hey, there's this other thing on the other side pushing back. It really comes down to how they are standing against. Are they standing against ideas on principle or are they standing against things that scare them because they are different? And that is a hard thing to do because the All Lives Matter movement, right, it's not a movement that gained traction because people were saying, well, what is all lives? They were saying all lives matter. Some were saying that in response to Black Lives Matter because they're saying my life matters too. And I'm okay with saying including everybody. And that actually trying to trying to say, let's let's make it inclusive. Some are tr- trying to say Black lives are not important enough to talk about, right? And those are very different perspectives that got lumped into one hashtag. And of course, the hashtag didn't doesn't have a movement behind it. There's not an all lives matter movement. So, and that it goes for everything. It's reactionary and conservative. And that, and, and like you said, when I say conservative in this sense, at right now, I mean it as the, like you said, conserving what has come Social before, values, conserving yeah. traditions rather than political stuff. All right. Well, let's kind of bring our conversation to an end here. I know you wanted to mention religion a little bit. Can you summarize that ever so briefly for us, how postmodernism affects religion? And then then we can conclude this episode together. Religion, the thing I wanted to talk about is how in our world today, people are becoming more and more non-religious. The group Unaffiliated is growing by leaps and bounds in our world today. What has been growing even faster than the unaffiliated, meaning not part of any standard organized religion, has been the group spiritual but not religious. And I think that's an important thing to see, that people are open to spirituality, that it's not the science is all true, and therefore, if you leave one faith, you have no faith. It's now, I believe in spirits, beings, I believe in a greater world beyond this one, but I don't hold to one standard understanding of how that spiritual world reflects ours. And so we have to understand that we're speaking to people who come from spiritual but not religious backgrounds, unaffiliated. But then we're also, as we're evangelizing, as we're speaking to postmodern people, it's all religions are something we have to understand, at least a a cursory understanding of, because people come from everywhere and, and people have all sorts of different religious baggage that they bring. It's not a Christian or nob- or nominal nine, like kind of lapsed Christianity that we're dealing with. It's, it's something much bigger than that. It's the world over how people view the spiritual realm beyond our own. Very good. Well, uh, thanks for chatting with me on this subject. I think we definitely got into some spicy yeah. subjects. And my philosophy for a long time on stuff like this, social subjects, was to just never talk about it because I know it's basically impossible to talk about these kinds of subjects without stepping in it somewhere. Uh, So I'm just going to admit we stepped in it and I don't know exactly where we stepped in it, but uh, I just ask that, uh, you know, if you 
uh, find yourself all animated and angry and everything else at uh, these couple of pastors that are talking about this subject, that you would come on to restitutio.org and find this episode and leave a comment so that you can help us. Uh, see your perspective, because ultimately, I don't, I don't take from this conversation, Jake, that you're saying uh, you have it all figured out, and everyone needs to no. think about it the way you're thinking about it. Absolutely. In not. fact, what we're actually trying to do is understand how people are thinking about it differently than we're thinking about it. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, and it is a difficult exercise getting outside of our own heads a little bit, trying to see the world through a different lens than the biblical worldview. So I really appreciate your courage here to forage this path. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I just encourage any of you that are really angry right now, take it out on Jake. Please do. <laughs> Maybe we can put my email in the show notes and people His can find me. His skin is thicker. <laughs> <laughs> but anything else you want to say to conclude here, Jake? I think that's everything. You know, I, I really do think we, we covered a lot of ground and look forward right. to uh, finishing up this conversation in the next podcast. All right. Sounds good. That's it for this episode. would love to hear your thoughts, your criticisms, your questions, your feedback. And you can do that at restitutio.org. Just find episode 372. This is part three of our series on postmodernism with Pastor Jacob Ballard from Indiana and uh, would love to hear back from you on this. I realize that these are very hot-button and controversial topics that we are, we are looking to not so much discuss as peer behind to see what drives them and to see how postmodernism intersects with them. Really, but anything's fair game in the comments, so long as you're respectful. would love to hear from you. Also, just want to let you know we have one more episode in this series on postmodernism, so stay tuned for that next week. And check out the other episodes mentioned in this podcast today. Episode 358, A Christian Perspective on Black Lives Matter with Russell Brown, as well as episode 292, A Change of Affection with Beckett Cook, which was recorded just after Cook got fired for no longer agreeing with the gay lifestyle. So take a look at that as well. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We've had a great year. I did want to give a shout-out to William Barlow for having the most listened-to episode recorded in 2020. Thanks, William Barlow, for recording Questioning Way International Doctrines, episode 313. Over 1,000 downloads and counting, over 1,100 downloads and counting. So congratulations to you, Will Barlow. If you haven't listened to that one yet, it's a doozy. You should definitely listen to it. And uh, I'll probably be posting in the next day or two just the top 10 episodes from 2020. And a lot of the people in the lineup for 2020 for the most downloaded are not people that had been on the podcast in previous years. So that's exciting to see some new blood. Thanks to all of you who have been listening to this podcast throughout the year. Uh, we had a huge dip, as you might imagine, when everyone stopped doing all their commuting and all the gyms closed and people stopped listening to podcasts for a couple months there and just glued themselves to the news. And that's all anybody wanted to think about or do is worry about the news and the pandemic. And hopefully 2021 will have brighter days ahead where we'll have more openings and this thing will get under control but either way, we are going to be here for you at Restitutio. We're so glad for all the feedback we've received over the last year. If you would like to 
send a message, an audio message. I did want to let you know about this. You can do that at restitudio.org, and you can just uh, click the podcast button or the podcast info button and scroll down, and there's a big image there that says start recording, and that'll allow you to record directly in your phone or on your PC or laptop or tablet, however you're getting around these days. And I would love to hear some audio messages from you. It caps out at 90 seconds or something, but send an audio message with your favorite episode of 2020. Would love to hear from you. And if I get a number of those in, we may even play them out on the air. So please do that if you can. Also, in in this episode, in the show notes, if you just scroll down to the bottom, you'll see that there is a little link there for SpeakPipe. And that's the, uh, the freebie software that we're using to record these. And it just says, leave a voice message via SpeakPipe. So do that, please, if you don't mind. We'd love to hear your actual voices. That's it for today. We'll catch you next year in 2021. Uh, everybody stay safe and get out there and make a difference for God and for Christ. Take care and don't forget, the truth has nothing to fear.